Aloha, and welcome to SUP FM, the podcast for stand-up paddleboarders everywhere. So with no further ado, let's get out on the water and on with the show. Hello, and welcome back to SUP FM. My name's Simon, and this week's guest is Steve West, who's no stranger to the water and has massive expertise across a number of water disciplines in which he's competed at the very top level. He's also written about water sports, he's designed kit including boards for the European brand Mistral, and that's just a brief taster of his achievements and his activities. His book, which we mention in the interview, is well worth a look, and all the links are in the show notes. Steve's huge experience on the water means he's got some strong views, and very much like this podcast, he's really keen that new people to the sport get the right information and keep on developing their love for it. I also took the opportunity to talk to him a bit about the history of the sport and its origins, and about Aloha and the Pacific Island culture, which the sport owes so much to, and which he fully immersed himself in particularly during his outrigger canoe racing career. The sound recording is a bit glitchy, so apologies, but it's really worth sticking with, and I learned a load in this chat. So here he is, Steve West. Hi Steve, welcome to SUP FM. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on. I've just recently um, taken delivery of your stand-up paddle paddler's guide which is a pretty considerable and, and thick tome here it's here right next to me and uh, I realized it was quite significant before I even opened the package because normally when books come through to me they come through under the large letter classification and this one came under small parcel <laughs> so it's a, it's a big old block, but it's absolutely packed with just incredible information and it covers all areas of uh, stand-up paddle. That must have been quite a job to write that. Yes, look, it was, um, you know, it was five years of my life, but I suppose um, at the time I just wanted it to be, to, it to be very thorough. And in a, in a way, it was a learning exercise for myself. And uh, during the course of uh, producing the, the chapters and the book, uh, I just felt that there was so much going on it was so dynamic of course everything was changing quite rapidly uh, I, I guess i would have started in 2004 2005 and mm-hmm. uh, you know was chipping away at it and uh, i'd be writing things and suddenly realize oh okay that's changed i need to <laughs> address and there were issues coming up not, not i would say issues but you know I mean, the usual teething problems of de- developmental issues that were coming up i thought that i should address you know, the origins of the sport and the designs of paddles where were they coming from uh the board designs how they were changing because they were changing so rapidly race balls race rules how they were sort of introduced sort of kind of suddenly appeared out of nowhere one day um so these are sort of things i tried to tried to cover and uh hopefully address in a, in a substantial way well in a substantial way definitely and i i would say that shame on me for not getting this earlier it's an absolute must read certainly for instructors and anyone even with actually a, a casual interest in stand up paddle because as you say it covers the history and the origins and its uh, connection with outrigger and uh, there is basically everything there i can't think of anything that you've left out quite frankly but um <laughs> so so it's an a- absolute try we'll talk a bit more about some of the the topics that you've covered in there a bit later on but first of all Steve Could I just ask you just to introduce yourself to those who maybe aren't as steeped into the SUP heritage as you are, because you're a a true waterman. You've covered quite a number of sports and you've travelled internationally. So just just tell me a bit about your origins, because you grew up, I think, in Africa, was it? Yeah, I was born in West Africa and and, uh, spent the first eight, nine years of my life living there until I was uh, sent off to boarding school back in England. And that, that became my real first experience of England, to be honest, being being in a boarding school, um, which is total purgatory for a person like myself. And uh, But, um, you know, we then moved to East Africa. We were in Tanzania. We were always on the water. My dad was always a keen, uh, yeah, keen waterman. He was, a, he was diving and he was, you know, fishing and doing sailing and we had power boats and all sorts of stuff that, that was there for me to, to tap into as a kid and of course it rubbed off and me. So swimming and being in the water was my life 
Um, we, when we were living in Mauritius for four years, which is that little island off the coast of uh, Madagascar that people know about through windsurfing particularly. Um, so we were there in Indonesia for some years. So, you know, this constant exposure to tropical environments and, uh, and different cultures, which really influenced me as well, and particularly the culture of uh, coastal cultures, you know, how, and how coastal cultures were influenced by their environment. So whether it was canoeing, uh, you know, fishing, uh, surfing, and so forth. And these are indigenous people, you know, I'm seeing, and it really sort of inspired me. Um, and I guess um, once my schooling was over, I, I'd taken up in surfing in Mauritius in probably 1978. Mm-hmm. Um and from there, I just sort of see things just snowball. I, I was involved with windsurfing very, very heavily. In England, I came back to England, I suppose. Uh, at that point, I'd finished my schooling and I stayed here for about a year and a half windsurfing, two years, and was sailing professionally. And I I was became an instructor and I was doing all the usual things. Started writing for magazines and contributing and, and represented Britain. Uh, I was actually in Peter, I was captain of the Peter Stuyvesant windsurfing display team. I sell, we had the British windsurfing display team, which travelled around. I was with them. Did well in competition. and was in the world for one of the world's first uh, professional windsurfing events, which I did well in. It was in the Isle of Man, 81. But I, I finally sort of moved off to Australia uh, for, for, for the purposes of windsurfing. But um, you know, I was... And took I had been when I was much younger. I was actually paddling kayaks to be fair for quite some time as well. So I paddled those. And then I, so it was kayaking. It was then windsurfing, and then actually moved into arrogant canoeing when I got to Australia. And um, the arrogant canoeing then became my next full time occupation. Um, I was making my living really from writing and designing. I was taking photographs, writing for magazines, helping with designs, and. Um, being paid to do that, and it's pretty much what I still do now. But uh, going to Arrigo Canoeing was fantastic because it got me to go, allowed me to travel all through you know, Tahiti and uh, Fiji and uh, just all through the islands and compete in Hawaii, compete through California. And, and that was 26 years of my life. I just literally just was fully immersed in it. And, of course, that full immersion in the culture and in the, in the culture of canoeing that it is in the Pacific, it really is the, Cauldron, it's, it's the say the cauldron. It's the main team sport, isn't it? For a lot of it. yeah, I mean, it's the national team sport of Hawaii. It's the national team sport of uh, New Zealand. It's the national team sport of the Hawaiian Islands. So you've got these island nations, which are very much it's sort of uh, you know they treat it as their as their sport. It's indigenous to them, and uh, it's, it's it's a massive uh, a massive going concern. Of course, Molokai is a race everyone knows about, but of course that. With stand-up paddleboard, but of course, people were racing on arrow canoes that probably for over fifty years have been crossing the channel. So, when stand-up did come along, um, you know, I was like a lot of other people going, oh, "What's this crazy sport? This will last five minutes." Um, but it was no surprise to see people standing. And of course, I, I as a kid, I'd seen people standing and paddling on canoes and various other things <laughs> as a kid in, in Africa, and then I'd, in both on both East and West Africa, I'd seen them in. In Indonesia, you know, I'd seen these things growing up and then all of a sudden you see it becoming a sort of a, a sport and you're going, well, of course, sport? Well, of course, first it started as a recreation, then it became a sport, or at least some people treat it as a sport. Um, and then it suddenly became a big, massive going concern, you know. I, and I thought to myself, well, okay, go with the flow. You can't fight uh, sort of the, 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 the will of the people, you know. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I mean, very varied. I, I um, it's always been um, a mixture of things for me. I got uh, certainly lots of coaching. I've been involved. I was the national coaching uh, director for Australia for Arrowhead for six years. Uh, the national coaching mm-hmm. director of Fiji for for seven years. So I was travelling back and forth to Fiji for many years. Um, I then wrote the world's first Arrowhead coaching manual, which I did with the Institute of Sport. Um, in Australia and worked with the Australian canoeing to produce that. And um, that sort of got me into that coaching role as well, you know, and, and coaching, training the trainers, coaching coaches, you know, which I think is another level. I mean, if you teach someone how to stand up paddleboard or canoe, that's one thing. But training coaches and writing syllabuses for that is is quite a quite an undertaking. 
And, and, you, t- and you talked about uh, SUP, SUP and your first contact with it. Do you remember the first time you went out on a board or you tried it? Yeah, I think uh, I do, actually. I was in Mooloolabar, Australia, on Queensland, the Sunshine Coast, and a friend of mine, Woogie Marsh, who's uh, a great canoe paddler. He's, he'd won Molokai a few times in t- paddling team canoes, and I'd, ra- I'd raced with him several times as well in cruise. And he's just like on the beach one day with his board and he's paddling. I was hey, Westy, give this a go. You know, so I've gone, oh, really? I've gone. And my, my, now I have a, my self-defense mechanism, all these things, is, is to say no because I've become obsessed with sports, you see. So I tend to go, no, I better not do that because I'll probably get hooked and I'll be really be in trouble. So I jump on this damn board and paddle out. And there's, there's a bit of a, there was a bit of a swell going on. And uh, I'd go out into the swell. I was catching the waves and just having a ball. I thought, well, of course, you know, for an outrigger paddler, that at that point in my life, uh, I was this was two thousand and four, two thousand and five. You know, um, uh, still fit enough and strong enough to sort of stand up and make this make it seem relatively easy. You know, and um, I thought, well, this isn't so hard. You know, it's a bit hard on the legs because we're spending years sitting down paddling a canoe, but all the, all the principles are there. The windsurfing skills were there, so I was standing and paddling and just loving it. I thought, actually, this is all right. And I think you know what I most of us who were paddling arrogance at the time who got involved with it were perversely attracted to it as a cross-training platform. We didn't consider it our primary sport. We just considered it something to do to sort of, uh, you know, just keep us fitter and stronger and um, give us something else to, to smash ourselves with, basically. Um, and that's how I got got involved. You know, I, and, uh, of course, once you've tried it once, you, you just mm. find yourself going out again and again and trying to master it. That's right, because... Famously, Laird Hamilton and Dave Kalama were pushing it and sort of made it into its modern incarnation. But as you said, people have been paddling, standing up since time began. But, you know, in terms of its modern roots, I I know Waikiki Beach was suggested as a place where the sort of modern movement of that really, really happened with with the Beach Boys there. And you talk a bit about that in your book. Could you just tell the listeners about the Waikiki Beach Boys? Yeah, well, like, look, I think one of my one of my um, uh, sort of roles, if you like, what I like to think that I do is I'm a, a historian. So when I when I hear people bleating about certain you know, uh, people inventing a sport, I have to be very cautious because I need to go a bit more in depth and give credit where it's due. Put it that way. Um, you know, I know certainly Laird and Dave Klama brought the sport to 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 a forefront, and uh, they helped sort of push it and make it into something that. From nothing, effectively, but there were influences prior to that. And the Waikiki Beach Boys are very famous. They've been running; they had a, a spot there, a concession on the Waikiki Beach for many years, and taking tourists out in their canoes, uh, you know, canoe surfing, and they would hire out surfboards. And they were basically the custodians of the um, of the beach of that beach area. And uh, they would actually get up on these big long. Uh, tongue depressors, these uh, Malibu boards, and they would paddle around with, with uh, canoe paddles and uh, take photos with Nikona's cameras at one point. That was sort of, and they had started earlier and earlier. I think I think they was doing that even as early as the, oh, in the 1930s through the 40s and 50s. Even There's even evidence of them seeing them doing it then. But when they were carrying Nikona's cameras, it was sort of more towards in the, you know, the 50s and 60s. <laughs> Um, I can't remember when the Nakonas came out, sixties certainly. Um, so they they was you know taking tourists photographs the tourists on these on these on these platforms that they were using for paddling, and I suppose even they didn't take it seriously. They they, they thought it was a bit of a joke. It was just something just a means of getting around. You know, um, there is that famous chap in there. I forget his name now. The uh, uh, Hawaiian resident who actually did do it very uh, quite fastidiously, and uh, there's a story in there about him. In fact, a friend of mine, Todd Bradley, he, he has a very good story about him, how he met him. And he was like eccentric. He actually took it seriously. I mean, no one no one took him seriously, but he took the sport seriously or the, the, the pastime of doing it. So he would go out and do, do it a lot. So, yeah, it's it's a real thing. It really did happen. The Unfortunately, the Waikiki Beach Boys are now longer on the beach. They got kicked off. They lost their concession, from what I understand. So that, that's not something that goes on at the moment. But it's good to give some provenance to this and just to say, well, you know, it was happening back then in Hawaii. And one thing, one of the things I, I have made comment about is the fact that 
the fact that they had they had area canoeing skills meant that they could stand and paddle on a board, and that's not insignificant in terms of the history of the of the sport. And it's not insignificant also that a lot of the the top paddlers uh, have been have come from an area canoeing background. And you mentioned earlier on about it is a cross training opportunity for um, outrigger paddling, and you know, looking at the outrigger sport as a layman, clearly which I am, a lot of the movements are almost identical, certainly the upper body movements, the paddles are so similar. As you said, stand-up paddling exercises the core and the legs, and I can definitely see that as an extension of, of training. Yes, you know, I, I used to joke to my – years ago I used to sort of have um, sort of uh, battles of myself internally thinking – why have they named it stand-up paddleboarding? It's, it's just such a mouthful, you know. It's not, it doesn't roll off the tongue. And um, part of me thought, well, why don't they call it canoe boarding? You know, because <laughs> you're you're basically standing up on a board canoeing, you know. Um, but then, of course, it was it was, and this is where this juxtaposition becomes because because you're on a board, there's this assumption you're surfing, but of course you're not surfing at all. You're just paddling, standing on a board, and uh, a pretty rudimentary one at that. But you do. As a canoe paddler, is when you stand up, you quickly learn that the biomechanics are there. You just have to learn to come to grips with the balance uh, side of things. And if you're a windsurfer or a surfer, you understand rail transitions. You can steer through your feet. Um, you understand those concepts. So, um, yeah, I think the similarities are very, very key. I mean, for example, I suppose you know, Jim Terrell and, uh, and the like, and the like um, uh, there are... Uh, uh, there are guys who come from C1 backgrounds, for example, and, and that's very interesting. But they come from a flat water environment. It's, it's flat, and a lot of their racing is quite short and not so much distance. Whereas area paddlers come from a rough water environment. They're open, they tend to be more open ocean paddlers. They're more marathon distance orientated. Um, so for a guy who's a Molokai paddler, like Travis Grant, great friend of mine, I've raced canoes with him, uh, Aussie guy. I mean, he's, as you know, well, I think he's like four times now of Molokai on stand-ups but he, come, he he's paddled Molokai on one-man canoes six-man canoes stand-up paddle boards um so it's very natural for him it becomes very very natural and I think from the point of view of learning and coaching if you if you swing a paddle very methodically on flat water in a sort of relatively static environment that's one thing but where every stroke can be more or less the same not entirely but you know if it's absolutely glassy that's the truth but of course, as soon as you go into any any sort of medium where it's rough and windy, all or everything you learn goes through out of the window. All of a sudden, you've got to bring in all these other things that you have to have to learn and apply, not just biomechanically, but also from the point of view of um, reading the water, uh, reading currents, reading, reading waves, swell, and so forth. You know, becomes more and more relevant. Uh, and that conversion from outrigger to SUP is very well trodden. You mentioned Travis Grant. Danny Ching is is another key one because he grew up in uh, with paddle sports as well with outrigger. He's been a massive success. There are, there are plenty of, of others. Is it that sort of biomechanical movement from outrigger that makes outrigger canoeists so well suited to stand up paddle? Yeah, it's that and also the other thing people don't possibly appreciate is that when you paddle a six-man outrigger canoe, so if you have six people in an outrigger canoe that's 35 to 40 feet long, when you sit there and you're grinding away with six of you in a canoe, what you have to appreciate, the load, the, the sheer load that's on your body is quite enormous. So when you're planting the blade in and pulling, you're pulling, you're trying to pull your weight, the weight, the, the share the weight of five other, other people plus the weight of the Plus the weight of the armor, the float on the outside of it, and all the all the componentry that goes with it. So, and and the the sheer drag is is really quite enormous. When you move away from the six man, you go into a one man, a single solo canoe. The drag the drag coefficients are, are less, so it's actually easier on the body to paddle a one man than it is a six man. And when you go to paddle a stand up paddleboard, it's sort of it's 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 uh, <laughs> it's sort of it's easy. It's easier in, on some levels, a little harder on the other. What makes paddling a stand-up paddleboard difficult actually is the leverage because you're stu you're stood up and you're dealing now with very long levers, 
Whereas when you sat down, your levers are very short, so you can actually get over the stroke and apply a lot more uh, body weight and power. But as you stand up and the lever gets longer, uh, the stresses on your joints and things actually becomes quite quite significant. And, it's, and this is why a lot of the again guys like Danny and Travis, great, they're great, they're, they're great buddies. They've uh, they've paddle our canoes together. Even, even uh, like Catalina Crossing, they've done it together as a as a, as a team paddling in a relay which they hold the record for they're sort of biomechanically suited they're similar heights similar build um but they're sort of short and compact a bit more like this and when and when you notice they they brought their paddle lengths down shorter and shorter and shorter so they could really get over the stroke and apply higher stroke rates and use their body mass rather than using uh, relying on long levers that which they don't have because they're not six foot six (laughs) um they're relying on other factors and a lot of outrigger paddlers learn this to get over the top of the stroke and paddle in a very good, in a in a, in, in a quite a dynamic way, um, not not overly static. And that's something I talk about in my book. You know, the difference between dynamic paddling and static, and how you apply those principles. So, in terms of the differences between uh, outrigger and sup, are there different techniques in terms of? entry and catch and so on than stand-up paddle because obviously you've got different levers i would i would have thought that sup requires a bit more fine tuning of the technique doesn't it yeah it's it's look it has definitely evolved i mean when it started there was there was a lot of uh, outrigger technique applied if you like and c1 technique and i think as time has gone on you've got other styles like this nordic style of paddling which has come through and the Nordic style is the House Luzolo brothers, for example, from Hungary, who I've had, uh, I've worked with. I say worked with. I've, I know personally, and they, through the Eleven Cities races, I've, I've over the course of five or six years, you know, watched them develop, and, and uh, you know, it, their style of paddling is that Nordic style, where it's quite straight armed, it's quite um, uh, robotic, uh, it's not loose and relaxed. There's less feathering of the blade. It's very much vertical entry, almost almost like a quite a vertical exit, and then they're moving. They move the blade forward and downward, not they don't swing in an arc. So they're all these little. They're they're using thrust from their hips and these sort of things. So there's some sort of. You know, there's been suggestions that look, you know, there is some relevance, or you can make a comparison with Nordic, Nordic style style skiing. Which and and when I when I've looked at, it, I think yeah, there is, there certainly is, but it's not. It's not it's not like for like, but it's close. But it, it just begs the question: Well, these guys and others, people have been modifying the, the paddling stroke to, to to make it more into a specific stand up stroke, and uh, and I think that's that's terrific to see the evolution of, of that. Now, it doesn't suit everybody, and also it doesn't suit you can't paddle the eleven cities using that technique. Uh, Sorry, you can paddle Living Cities using that technique, but you couldn't have paddle the Molokai Channel that, that way. It's a di- so it's horses for courses. And, of course, if you, if you become a, an ultra-distance paddler in flat water, you will hone uh, your, your, uh, your, uh, kin- your kinesthetics, but you'll be hardwired kinesthetically to perform a particular motion in flat water. And then if you have to adapt to rough water, it's quite very difficult for the flat water paddler to adapt. Uh, no, no more certain as it just is for the, the rough water paddler to adapt to flat water. So, and this is why, in the grand scheme of things, there are specialists in the world: specialists, rough water paddlers, flat water paddlers, sprint paddlers, distance paddlers, middle distance paddlers. And you know, when you start getting the micromanagement issues of, of coaching, and you you have to look at the biomechanics of people and their basic physiology and how they move, and you can determine pretty quickly if they if they're Good rough water paddlers. Will they make? Will they make better flat water paddlers? Yeah, it's. I, my life personally find it fascinating. <laughs> you know, um, it is, and and you know the laws of physics are involved in so many different ways, not just down to the biomechanics, but to displacement to the board and the paddle and the technique and so on. It, it's it's a, a fascinating area to get into. You mentioned Nordic paddling style there, and the Polynesian styles. Um, there's the Tahitian paddle style there's there's hawaiian just tell us uh, the difference between those particular techniques yeah well this is interesting because you know very many years ago uh you know the the you have to go back to the missionaries and this sounds a bit crazy to start the story there but it, it's relevant because uh, 
you know, you had these island paddlers who had been paddling uh, forever, all part of their culture. And uh, when the missionaries turned up, for example, in, in Hawaii, uh, paddling was banned for 50 years. 50 years they didn't paddle. And, um, but in Tahiti, they continued to paddle. They told the missionaries, well, yes, we'll go to church and we'll follow your ways, but we're not going to stop paddling. We'll, you know, we'll keep on doing what, we, what we've always done. So what happened is that during that course of that 50 years, the Tahitians uh, evolved their paddling strokes and even their paddles to some extent, whereas the Hawaiians had kind of forgotten. And when they started paddling again, um, they, they <laughs> I think they began paddling about 1875 is when they started paddling again. Um, then by about, the 19, about 1900, 1910, they started having regattas again. The way that they paddle was very old, very ancient compared to the way that the, uh, the Tahitians are paddling. So, and when the Molokai races were happening, and they sort of kicked off in the fifties, and you had uh, these guys paddling, they had really long, long shafts, and the paddles were very heavy, no, uh, all made from solid timber. And, and what happened is that the paddle dictated the way people could paddle. I mean, if you have a very particular paddle style a paddle rather will actually limit or enhance your paddling technique how you can apply yourself effectively but these blades were so big so heavy heavy the, the, the paddle they paddle with a very long loping stroke it's very long out the front very long out the back their bodies were low to the gunnel uh huge body movements you know and very slow stroke rates you know like 40 45 strokes in a minute was not was not uncommon um and then all of a sudden the tahitians turn up and they turn up in like 1970 they, they've been paddling all the way through they but they they turn up to molokai i think in 76 they're about 74 and um the gun goes and these guys just take off and they and they've got stroke rates of like 70 strokes in a minute and they they just fly across the, the channel and win this race <laughs> I think they had four or five, maybe five crews with them, and I think they finished in the top three or thereabouts. They were there. And those days they had a Koa class of canoe, which was a big, heavy, uh, uh, four or five hundred pound uh, mahogany boats made from timber. And they had a fiberglass division, and they won both. And I think they won both divisions. But they really caused an upset. And the, and the Hawaiians were looking at these guys, going, "My God, they they just paddling completely differently." And the Tahitians, they had learned uh, to change the paddle a bit make it lighter and they very and they constantly progressed and, with, and they were the first to take up much shorter paddles um and uh, it actually influenced from olympic there was an olympic crew that paddled from illinois uh who paddled across the channel they were all uh, just you know american dudes uh all from river paddling they turn up they turn up a short short shafted blades uh, paddles with t-grips which were, were introduced they these t-grips had never been seen before because most before that they had no 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 grip at the top of the paddle, and um, they smoked it. They just cleaned up and uh, again a very high stroke rate. The Tahitians saw that and thought, "Oh, that's great." They went back and got into it straight away. But the Hawaiians resisted. They just they didn't take to it. They took them forever to change their way because they thought, "Oh, we must stick to tradition," you know. But the Tahitians were constantly pushing the envelope on uh, on, on technique. So. It took the it took a very long time for Hawaiians actually to adopt this and catch up to the way the Tahitians were thinking, and um, but it's a very very different, much more punchy, fast, quicker, uh, quicker stroke. They had many different. They had they had a, a long they had a they had the long out the front, long out the back stroke. They had a short out short in the front, short out the back. They had all these things the, the things they could mix up where the Hawaiians only had one way of doing something, and that helped. That really worked against them massively. So. So yeah, Tahitian Hawaiian strokes were very, very different. Um, they've become closer and closer and closer, uh, and, and they've you know, adopted new paddle designs. And Tahitians, uh, yeah, they sort of keep on adopting and blending. And they're still the fastest guys on earth when it comes to six man outrigger canoe racing. No one can touch them. But um, it's uh, interesting to see, see just to see how that pa- the paddling strokes have evolved. Um, and then there was like an Anglo-Polynesian, which really is like a blend where the Australians in particular were very, very much uh, um, advanced in their paddling too. And they took elements of the Hawaiian elements of the Tahitian, put it together 
And that style became a, a very popular as well and sort of adopted by, by Californians and you know, Canadians as well. So, and then there was influence from the Dragon Boat guys who wanted to try to bring their influence in, but uh, their style didn't work quite, quite as well. In fact, um, there's many occasions where we've put Aria canoe teams together and gone Dragon Boat races without ever having any knowledge of paddle of dragon boating and absolutely smashed it. <laughs> you know? And these dragon boat guys go, where'd you guys come from? When you tell them this is the first time you've ever paddled a dragon boat and they get a little bit, dis- a bit upset. But... Well, engines uh, work anywhere, don't they really? I guess. Yeah. And I think, I guess the thing is too, our canoe paddlers, I mean, if you try to explain the dedication, I mean, it's, you know, so, you know, I've been lucky to, to be in winning crews in Molokai two occasions and you know it's it's um the dedication you have to put in is phenomenal it's uh you know you're out of bed 4 30 in the morning on the water by five you do two and a half hours you do that get out of the way go to sleep have, go do some gym do running uh and this is your life literally you're doing this for years and years to get to the point where you can go and do molokai and and, and, and you know achieve and, and do well amazing experience so the, the polynesian the culture obviously we kind of appropriate some of that we have for the show we start with aloha what did you learn from the polynesian culture that's really helped you um in your water journey oh gee look i think you know i think that uh, you know it, respect is the most uh, the, the strongest takeaway i have for 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 polynesian culture and for polynesians and i've been so fortunate to 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 be amongst them and to be given uh, their their blessing i suppose in what i've been doing did so many years of my life and i have many stories where i've been quite blown away by um by their, their sort of generosity of spirit and you know i think that you know aloha actually i did listen at one point i think i've i listened to that comment about someone said uh uh you weren't someone wasn't so keen on the word aloha being used i think yeah that wasn't me i introduced it so. okay well, no, I just think people need to understand what aloha is. I mean, it's just, it's described as an, an emotional prism. You know, it's um, it's it's it's, it's uh, very very complex to explain what aloha is, and it's not just uh, you know you can say aloha to someone when they're coming and they're leaving, but aloha in spirit to be aloha in spirit is uh, to be massively generous and loving and giving, and, uh, but also not just to be towards people, but towards nature and all that all things are. It's it's absolutely uh, central to to say the Polynesian, but it's also central to to Tahitians who have a, who have a similar word, and, and the Marquesians they all have similar uh, greetings and words for this thing because they're all they're all bound by the same uh, canoe journey. And what do I mean? And the canoe journey is significant. So, for example, you know all all the islands of the Pacific are connected through one one canoe journey. And I guess the best example of that is you, you go to New Zealand. There are canoe clubs, area canoe clubs in New Zealand, which you can only be a member of if you're if you are a descendant of of a particular canoe that arrived in Aotearoa in, in New Zealand. So this canoe would arrive, men and women would procreate, they would form communities and so forth, and they all became part of this dynasty, this lineage. And if you want to paddle in their club, you need to be a part of that lineage, that that canoe journey. You know, I think uh, it just, you know, it, I mean, some of my experience, I was telling, I was talking to my wife, Manny, the other day about an experience I had in New Zealand where we went, to, I went to race in the Bay of Islands. And I'm in the Bay of Islands, we've got this big race the next day, I'm paddling uh, with an Australian New Zealand team, and we're expected to do really well, we're sort of you know, doing the right thing, rigged up canoes, and we went to sleep at night in a, you know, like a, a, a ceremonial house, like a marae. So you've got this big ceremonial house. There's about 60 of us all sleeping there on the floor. Uh, it's just one of the designated areas to sleep. So we're there sleeping. Now, I went in with my camera and I, being a, I was still, because whenever I'm racing, I was always still working, taking photos, writing my stories. And I, I clicked off a few photographs and a, a Maori tribal elder came to me and said, look, Steve, uh, respectfully not take the pictures inside the uh, inside this, the building. I said, oh, okay, no problem for respect, you know. So I put the camera away. Well, after the race, I get back to Australia and I developed the film. This is back in the old days. We had to take it to the chemist, you know, get it developed. <laughs> so I get so, so I get it developed, I get home, and um, 
amazingly, um, I t- when I took the photo, there were people in the photograph, and when I got the photograph back, all the Maoris were blurred, Virt- virtually not virtually not there at all, but all the uh, the, the Pakias, Pakias being white people, uh, were in the photograph. It was it absolutely, it just completely, I mean, you, you read about this stuff, and yeah, I know it's nonsense, you know, I, and I was completely blown away, and I've had many other experiences like that. Uh, when I've been amongst Polynesian people. So the very idea that, um, you know, aloha isn't real, um, you know, is, is, is unfounded, is absolutely real. Of course, you have to understand the deep, deeper essence of what it means. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, so I think it's, it's ceremony too. It's the idea that, and this is what I try to convey in my book a little bit, because stand-up paddle waters come from a, often they might come from quite a, a world that's, I can't describe it. Maybe I could put it in context. So in, in, in the outrig canoeing, a lot of people paddle outrig canoes in the Pacific because they're dispossessed. So what I mean by that. So if you're an Australian, if you're a white New Zealander, if you're, you know, uh, I can't think, even Hawaiians to some extent, but people are dispossessed. Why? Because their original, their original homelands really are back in Europe. They're European, but they're living in, still living in the Pacific. Um, and they live, and but they might not be godly people. They might they might not be worshippers going to church. They they lost their faith. They don't have faith in that anymore. But what they find, they actually find their spirituality and their and their reason. They raise on debt, if you like, through paddling out with canoes. And because they do that, they do. They find this aloha. They find this ohana, this family that we speak of, um, and they feel a part of something. And they and they and they love the the, the, the being a part of this uh, very very powerful mechanism that's not way it transcends sport it's way beyond sport you know and then they, you've got blessing ceremonies and all sorts that go on and they completely immerse themselves in it now even though the paddle is a sacred thing the canoe is a sacred thing and uh, you know i think that it's a it's a shout i'd hate stand up paddle boys to feel to to not to miss out on the opportunity to embrace the the the, the actual uh, significance of a lineage that can be traced back to something like outrigger canoeing. And, you know, I think that's not insignificant because people are paddling stand-up paddleboards now in huge numbers. And whether they know it or not, some of them or many of them are doing it because there's something missing in their lo- their lives, you know. And uh, they, they discover this and, and they become abs- absorbed in it and they find joy in it, happiness, purpose. It's existential. It's beyond it's, it gives them a reason to 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 live and exist beyond, say, work and having kids or whatever it might be. You know. Well, absolutely, and it's one of the themes that runs through pretty much all of our episodes, and the, the mental health benefits of spending time on the water and the exposure to nature and the environmental concern that comes with just being exposed to all of those activities. Out there. You mentioned that uh, so many people are taking up the sport. What sort of advice would you give to new paddlers, and particularly those paddlers who don't go for those long-established brands who are picking up, say, their their SUP package, their all-in-one package? Uh, how would you recommend they make adjustments or what would you recommend that they do to get the, the best value out of their investment? Oh, yeah. Look, um, you know, I think... <laughs> It is it is that ready accessibility of the sport of this. Well, I won't call it the people who are buying packages are not doing this as a sport, are they? Let's let's be honest. They they're buying it for a recreation. It's a, it's a means to an end to get on the water, and uh, you know perhaps it'll lead to something else. They they'll start taking being being fit seriously. They'll communing with nature, whatever it might be. But I think that you know that short of going and having a lesson these what they're going to find is that they, there's going to be a lot of discovery learning you know from the moment they unzip the package and they've taken it out of the plastic wrapper and they start to pump the board up uh, they're on a journey and in that journey you know they're going to there's going to be some frustrations you know um but i think that of course there is a absolute deluge of information on the internet in terms of you know googling stuff and uh, which in itself can be a minefield but um you know, I suppose the, the the issue for me has always been, as it should be for everybody, is it, it is their safety and because uh, water safety is obviously important for them, but also for end users, for other people coming in contact with them. So I think, you know, having some understanding of 
to safety, like where to where to launch and where to exit, and uh, those those map those issues are are very central to to the learning process and being safe at least. Um, you know the depth of water that, that they're paddling in and the underwater obstructions and tidals and tides and currents and all these little things are, are not unimportant. But you know it's very hard to sort of pass on and, and, and sort of give them that knowledge quickly is something you, a lot of it's a learning experience been and when i was a kid no one taught me all this stuff you just had to find out the hard way <laughs> um but i think that you know one thing we've all tried to avoid in that in this sport is not not to be over regulated and of course you become over regulated when accidents start to happen so i think it's a question of using as much common sense as possible learning from resources such as the internet from the from books and so forth you can grab and you know realize that uh, as much as it's fun to go on the water um, there are certain responsibilities to you, not just to yourself but to other other water users but i think yeah it's um you know i think one of the things i mentioned today is that the the, the buyer beware caveat on on the inexpensive equipment coming in as, as a package deal i mean that some of the package deals are actually quite good but fundamentally the one thing you'll find in most all the packages the paddle will be appalling and um why because you know there's this idea that a cheap heavy paddle is okay and in fact that that it actually isn't <laughs> um so what i would suggest to anyone buying a package is well whoopie do you saved a lot of money because you invested in the, uh, the package deal but uh most all of the time you could do yourself a favor by upgrading the paddle pretty quickly um, and investing in some of this lighter and, and more efficient. And I think one of the things I've always maintained for, for a very, very well for all my life really in canoe paddling and everyone should take this on board is that you know, there's no such thing as a beginner paddle in so much as you know, everyone deserves a, the best possible paddle they can use. And, you know, the, the board is actually absolutely secondary, um, mm. you know, so because why? Because well, the paddle can has the capacity to injure you or to limit your experience and uh, suck your the energy out of you to cause you injury, all sorts of things, and and limit your fun. So, uh, like I say, the, the the paddle is the central issue, but it's, it's secondary to that. So, and of course, a lot of the buying selling process is very much fo- has been focused on the board uh, and getting the package, the the deal. But actually, in many respects, you know. As I say, the paddle remains central to the to the to the process. So, stand up paddle has been in massive growth. I mean, it's been the fastest growing water sport for a number of years now, and since the first lockdown, certainly in the UK and internationally, it absolutely exploded. But uh, there are other sports that have also been the fastest growing water sports. I, I know kayaking was, and, and windsurfing mm. was as well, and. I know that there are some lessons to be learned from the windsurfing experience mm. because that fell off completely, and there were some reasons for that, weren't there? Yeah, look, you know, um, it took a long time for windsurfing to sort. Of, well, actually, no, that's not fair. It didn't it? actually it took it was quite quick. Um, by the time the sport was released in 1968, from a commercial point of view, so through the 70s, through 1970 to 1980s. The sport grew uh, rapidly and got reached quite quite a fever pitch by about the early part of the eighties, eighty two, eighty three, eighty four. By eighty six, the market was dropping off. Funnily enough, and by nineteen ninety, the sport was actually in free fall. And uh, there was a time when people thought that windsurfing is exponential; just keep on going and going and going. But you know, there, there, it turned out there was a ceiling limit. And I'm actually in the process of writing a forty. Well, so it's a history of Mistral. It's a 45-year history of, of Mistral as a brand from the, from the windsurfing right through to where they are today. And I've interviewed a lot, interviewed a lot of very famous people from the past, you know, in the process. Um, and it's interesting to see that hear their story of how you know the sport has sport died and give their reasons to why, why it slowed down. But one one of the most interesting reasons I had actually was the fact that um, people's uh, people's lifestyles changed. But, you how happy people became more uh, limited by time and things started to speed up as the digital world sort of hit us and people were more impatient. They didn't want to rig things up and be bothered with the faff of it. And actually this is where stand-up paddleboard became 
so convenient. It's so damn convenient that actually it makes it a, a go-to option to get on the water very quickly. So when it came along and windsurfing was dying, of course, a lot of the windsurfing brands jumped on the bandwagon pretty quickly. Um, but having jumped on the bandwagon, they were, they were green. They had no clue what they were doing. Uh, they're pret- they'll pretend, but they didn't. They had, they're, not, they're not from a paddling background. Um, no more than the ISA is from a paddling background, by the way. But there you go. That's just the reality of it. So, um, yeah, that's a whole other topic, isn't it? Yeah, but I think that you know, so they grabbed hold of that they they grabbed hold of the sport and they thought, well, let's monetize this. It's making boards. How hard can it be? So they started making boards. They started producing some of the merch, the, uh, the the marketing blurb that I would read about paddles and paddling, and I used to cringe, going, "Oh my god, these guys have absolutely not got a clue." Um, and um, you know, it took some time before people re- or before it was realized really that windsurfer designers could not design paddle boards because they had no. Uh, understanding of the hydrodynamics, they, they understood the hydrodynamics, but they they didn't understand, they didn't account for the fact that we're paddle using a paddle, we're going pretty damn slow. So they were designing boards that weren't really fit for purpose. And it wasn't until the prone paddle board designers got involved that things started to change in terms of designs, um, and things have been improving ever since. But but one thing the industry is always being super cautious of is not to, you know, and. <laughs> There's a few things here at stake. Look, one is that because the sport was promoted as a surf sport very early on, it was it suited the marketeers, it suited people to make it sexy and appealing by by saying, "Hey, it's a surf sport, man!" You know, throwing shuckers and doing the alohas and the high fives and that nonsense, and wearing the aloha. Sh- you see pictures of people wearing the full sort of aloha shirts and the board board shorts in, in the middle of Arizona on a lake, thinking they're part of the whole surfing scene. I you think. You are kidding, aren't you? <laughs> um, you know, Salt Lake City at the Surf Expo used to be a ram with all these brands. I mean, they but and they spent hundreds and hundreds of thousands investing money in the in the surfing industry, trying to trying to sort of portray as a surf sport. But eventually, people just didn't go back to Salt Lake City anymore. It didn't work because why? Because really, the sport's more in line with canoeing and kayaking sort of mentality, and just uh, and actually wasn't a sport at all. It's more primarily a recreational pastime for most the vast, vast majority of people. And it is kind of absurd that we spend, you know, I'm, I'm involved in design and, um, you know, and, and other, other things, but a lot of my time is, you know, if I think about how many, how many hours, man hours I put into designing race boards, for example, compared to how many hours I have to put into, into just recreational boards, it's absurd, you know, because the, the return on investment in terms of man hours and time and mental processes mm-hmm. to create a race board, knowing you're only going to sell a few, Mm. Uh, whereas you can make a few squiggles on a on a, on a, on a file and send it off and get get an inflatable board made for for the masses, and it takes virtually no mental effort whatsoever. <laughs> you know, so, you know, but I think the industry, particularly, you know, windsurfing industry, we'd learnt from windsurfing that you know we shouldn't make the sport extreme. Now, I get it, but also there's a lot of people in the sport who are flying under the radar that are not attracted to stand-up paddleboarding because, you know, now that the sport's maturing to some extent, you know, there are people out there who are probably uh, still not being attracted to it, but we should, we should uh, try and pull into the sport. And how do you do that? Well, you do need more technical equipment. You need to sort of, you know, sort of create a mechanism to encourage these more elite kind of athletes out there to get involved with stand-up paddleboarding because they, they just look at it and think it's just a bit of a joke. You know, they still do. Um, mm. so, but how do you – I don't think we should constantly just only uh, play dumb down the sport to the point where we're ignoring um, those people that might want a bit of a, a, bit of a challenge. You know, because, you know, guys who come from Sursky backgrounds or our canoe backgrounds, they were enticed into it. But um, there must be others that are out there that could be interested in, in swinging your paddle and, Paddling ultra distance, for example, I mean, doing crazy stuff. Why not? Um, you know, uh, so I think there's it. It, 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 it walks a very funny tightrope to stand up paddleboarding. You know, as I say, there's been a big effort to dumb it down. But when you're a coach, and for example, I was speaking to a lady the other day. She runs um, she runs one of the largest uh, resorts companies in the world. They have stand up paddleboarding in all their resorts around the world, and uh, they have windsurfing, they've had kiteboarding all sorts and over the years they make most of their money is actually made through tuition although they although you can go to the resorts and you can uh, you know you can hire equipment they also do do this do the tuition 
So 80% of their income actually comes from teaching teaching people. Um, but ironically, they can't teach anybody stand-up paddleboard because no one wants a lesson. <laughs> Why? Why? Because the industry's told them you don't need one pretty, pretty much, um, which, is kind of, which is kind of a shame because, you know, I think the media and the way we promoted it, you know, is, is, is I, I get it, but I think that, Everyone benefits by being given some good, strong hints and tips about not just about safety issues, but also how to how to paddle better and more efficiently. And I think that's uh, kind of a shame, really. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it's a way of maximising um, the return on investment. It's something that I I constantly raise on Facebook groups and so on. And yes, absolutely, you can teach yourself, but it takes you far longer. Whereas something like a ready to ride so i'm a a b super instructor within two hours you can get people doing some pretty advanced stuff with the right instruction yeah yeah absolutely you know this is the thing it is it's okay to go and get a lesson you know it's actually you know strangely enough and it's sort of a a reverse engineered where when i when i when i first went to australia back in the early 80s and i needed a bit of extra money i i would i actually set up a little school i had you know five or six boards and i I thought i'll make some money on weekends you know uh, teaching people how to windsurf, but the Australian mentality was: look, no, nobody teaches us anything, mate. We just we're because from birth we're in the water. We don't need to. We don't need to learn that stuff. We want to learn windsurfing. We'll teach ourselves. And I thought it was a really interesting. That that literally was a cultural, a cultural sort of juxtaposition. Which was, and I I learned very quickly that Aussies are, you know, they, they really are extraordinarily extraordinarily capable in the water. So it kind of made sense, but. Here in England, things are a bit different. We're not a natural-born water racer people. We're, you know, and I think that uh, that's because of climatic issues more than anything. So when it comes to learning, um, yes, uh, you can learn. You know, if you've got a short window to – if you've got a short window, when you buy your board, you've got – you buy it in April, May, it's water's still cold, you've got, you know, whatever your job is, how much time you can get off. You might get, you get a few sessions in the spring – you get mm-hmm. get a bit of a holiday in the summer, and you learn, and you do a bit more. By the end of the, by the end of the of that so called season, well, how, how good are you really? What have you really learned? So, what you need to do is actually fast track that learning as quickly as you can in these colder climates, so that you can actually maximise your return on the investment in the first place. I.e., the board that you just bought. So, you know, get the lesson, spend the fifty quid, the hundred quid, whatever it's going to cost you, um, and see that as a mandatory part of your your development into the sport and. And yeah, and you. I think if if more people had lessons, the attrition rate would be lower. I mean, one one of the things I was when I was working with the ASI and WSA, you know, one of the things I used to always, in fact, when I first started first started teaching uh, coaches and doing instructions, instructing with them, it was the one of the biggest questions I used to get with people running schools were they literally would run out. They would literally talk. They could talk about stand up paddleboarding technique for about half an hour, and then literally couldn't say any more. Whereas, mm. whereas I could talk for three days, you know, <laughs> and I'd go and they'd run out and I go, well, you know, you've got to, you've got to really start thinking outside the box, you know, in terms of how you can extend yourself and learn more and teach more and offer more in your schools. You can't just, you know, get to a finite pipe point and run out so quickly because you can't really, you're not really offering very good value, are you? <laughs> you know? So, uh, you know, it was a question of sort of teaching these guys and girls to sort of, you know, how they, could they extrapolate the most out of the lesson? And I said, look, okay, I said, let's take one to- one topic. Let's take, just talk about um, tides and currents. Let's just, let's just talk about beach breaks. Let's talk about, you know, rips. Let's talk about um, shipping traffic and, and marine laws. Let's talk, you know. There's so many things you can talk about. It just, it's just, it's an endless conversation. And, uh, you know, talk about paddle designs, boards. I mean, and I think, you know, I remember an hour in canoeing when I was doing, so, so spent so many years working with the Fijians and, and Australia, and uh, often the question would come up about how you, you'd have teach new recruits and get them on the water. And I used to say, look, in Hawaii, for example, some of the clubs have, they, they have what's called an initiation process. In other words, you have to earn the right and the respect of the elders, elders before you even go on the water. You don't just turn up, you know, and um, on day one and expect to go out on the water. You know, that, mm. it's, there's this rite of passage because you're not fit for purpose. You're not safe to go on the water. So you have to go through this process to get there. And I used to sort of joke with guys and the girls and say, look, think of it as foreplay. 
you know, you come to the, they come to lessons and, it, and you get people really excited. And you, you go, and I'm not saying everyone, there is splash and dash. We all know that you pay your cash and, you know, it's, it's a just, you know, a real quick thrill kind of thing. But for the people that want to have more in-depth information, you know, you've got to kind of wow them with, with a lot of stuff and make them really sort of embrace nature and the universe and the world around them, you know. Um, in a in a much deeper way, so they become fully connected, and they and they will end up you know paying more for the experience as well. So you know, there's that aspect of it too. It's a fascinating area, and uh, and a good start for any instructor increasing their knowledge about stand up paddle would be your paddler's guide, which is uh, uh, available now with links in the show notes. And I've got to ask you this, Steve: What's your view on foiling? It's very much the the thing at the moment that the wing foil. Have you? Had a bash at that yet? Yeah, actually, I'm current, well. I'm currently designing foils and working on wing, wing the, the the wing sails for foiling and, and the boards. I've designed some boards and uh, so going into sort of prototyping stages of those at the moment. And I followed the, the progression of foiling um, for quite a while now. It's particularly in well in various areas, but both in kiteboarding and wind wind foiling, wing foiling, and sup foiling. I think it's a bit. What we call in our industry, in the, the industry, it's really called a creative diversion. And what does that mean? It means that all of a sudden a brand decides it's going to invest its money in foiling and sell it to the world. And then you get a guy like Kai Lenny, who's a hugely talented individual, Dave Klam of this world and others, who they're all of a sudden they're out on the, the foils and bouncing up and down across the ocean, trying to inspire imaginations. The, the trouble with it is that it's so niche that, you know, it doesn't necessarily, it kind of, it gets the wow factor and all the likes on, on YouTube and on Facebook, but at the end of the day, from a, in, a, in a real world practical sense, it's not particularly commercially that viable or even palatable to the average person. Because again, again, it comes back down to the fact that, you know, uh, the average person can't do it, won't ever do it. Um, mm. So it's, and it's this purity as well. You know, I, I tend to think foiling, it's a form of sensory deprivation as well. It kind of detaches you from the water, so it's not, it's not, it's not, it's not necessarily all it's cracked up to be. And then, then I think to myself, well, once you've experienced falling on a wind, a wind surfer, and you've experienced it with a kite in your hand, you've experienced it with a wing in your hand, and you've experienced it uh, the paddle in your hand. Actually, it all kind of feels the same. Mm. Whereas if you take all those sports without the fall, they feel very different. So I don't know. I sort of I'm. Like I say, I think I, I think I'm stoked. I'm don't get me wrong. I'm stoked to the technology. I think it's absolutely awesome when I see stuff like this. And I've got a lot of mates to do it. I'm, I'm going to be doing it this summer for sure. I'm designing it. I've got to get out there and do it. But I just have a sort of uh, an uneasy feeling that you know, if you're talking sup falling specifically, you know, it's uh, to what extent would we call that an advancement, or would we simply call it a completely different sport altogether? Yeah, exactly. You know, um, yeah. So, yeah. Look, I've had a lot of discussions with my mates about this around the world, and you know, some some of my mates are absolutely one hundred percent into it, and they they, they they don't like my reservations about. It. I say, well, I'm just being practical and honest about it. That's all. I'm not being. I'm not un- in it. I'm not lacking enthusiasm for the concept. I just need to be a little bit cautious in terms of uh, you know seeing where it's going to go in the future commercially. Otherwise, you know. And um, obviously, you talked about Mistral. I've got a Mistral board. I think I'm the only person uh, in this area of the South Coast who's got one, and I'm keeping hold of it. Tell me a bit about your work that you've done, because you worked with them for a while, haven't you? Yeah, look, I was I was living in Fiji at the time, just on a little island. I was living on a little island called Leiluvia, run by a friend of mine. It's uh, 700 metres long, about 800 wide, I suppose, and living the dream, just writing books. And I was running a little water sports centre there and helping out and just loving the life and I got a phone call from Mistral they were actually you know, sort of headhunting really and they rang me up and said look we've heard about you and blah 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 and would you be interested in working and I said well not particularly because I'm quite happy on my island thank you and they, <laughs> they said well come on come and come and see us when you're back and I went back for Christmas and flew over to Holland and met the the guys there and you know they sort of encouraged me to get involved with stuff and I made some you know sort of I said, made it clear. I said, look, I couldn't live in Holland. I've got to be able to be quite free with where I live. And they said, that's fine. You know, so, so what actually, what's transpired is, Mel, we, we set up our own company. We, we basically 
help uh, or service Mistral with design ideas and uh, consultancy ideas. And, you know, for example, I guess the first time I ever did anything significant for them, well, the first thing was significant. I think I went to the 2014 uh, 11 Cities race. I was invited there with Mandy. And when we saw the race, uh, Mistral had a couple of boards in there, but they were they were nowhere in the field. They weren't com- competitive at all. And, you know, the uh, the CEO turned to me he was crying, literally was so upset. He said, look, you know, we're here stand-up paddle boarding. We're nowhere. We need to do something. So I went away and designed a board. And um, the next year we turned up. We had Stevie Teotoa and we had uh, uh, Seychelles came over. And um, we um, they won all five days. These guys just smashed it. And uh, the House Hughes brothers were there. And uh, Sven Rasmussen wasn't that happy from starboard board. <laughs> And the crazy thing is, I, li- I literally made one prototype. I designed this board, made one prototype. We went to production, made it, just made a bunch for the for the event. And uh, we knew these two superstars would come over and do us proud, as long as the board could could perform. And you know, it did. And then next year, it did very well. I think we, I think in terms of the women's division, I think it's one probably. I think it's one. With this one particular board with tweaks has won it five times now. So that's a good thing. And our men always finished often quite high up. So then we, you know, I design other boards, uh, which I think I think one, one of my boards holds the record for the another Mistral board holds the in twelve foot six division holds the record for the River Dart and the twelve six division holds the record time for the Battle of Thames race. Uh, I've got a fourteen foot Equinox board holds a record time in, in South Africa for a downwind. One Seychelles used that board from the eleven city. She used the uh, the Vortex board for the twenty four hour record for the Guinness Book World Records for the most miles paddled in four hours so so they were all kind of like little miles milestones that i was quite quite stoked about really and we don't make a big deal about it but you know because mr Al's, it's it's uh it's, not, it's sort of a, a quality brand but it's never been out for, for to be the biggest but by default they're doing they seem to be doing quite well at the moment so uh yeah so i do a lot of that stuff i do a lot of ghost writing for their you know for their media as well in the background so um mm-hmm. it, it keeps me busy and i say they're They've commissioned me now to write this book. It's a 45-year history of Mistral. So we're hoping to interview the likes of uh, Robbie Nation, Rick Nation, and others. I've been interviewing many of the old famous windsurfers, Charlie Mesmer and others from the past. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's, it's a I, – I work with Ernest Free Prada a lot. Ernest Free Prada was one of the original guys who set Mistral up all those years ago. He's now – he's 75 and still designing stuff, and it's crazy. No, it's an interesting I'm, – I'm a very busy guy and very lucky because I just get up and I work at home never short of things to do which is uh, so i'm blessed in that sense and i live on the water so i get out as much as i can well absolutely you live in hailing don't you which um is one of the places where windsurfing originated i think it was invented on, on those waters there and yeah. i used to go to the national water sports festival which was uh, down on hailing as well really used to enjoy that so it's a fantastic spot yeah. do you get out on the water every day yeah i try to get every day um I got to say, we had two weeks of absolutely hell with those easterly winds blowing. So it's mm, been horrible. Been, bit, been bitter, so I had no interest in that. Um, you know, and this time of year, I should be in Tahiti, but there you go. <laughs> you know, toughing it out at the moment. Yeah, I'm, I mean, we're all confined pretty much at the moment, aren't we? But hopefully things will open up. So generally, I ask uh, people where, if money and time was no object, where would they love to paddle? Um, and most of the locations you've talked about is generally other people's favourites. Where in the world has been your favourite place to, to paddle? Where would you really like to, to go back to? Oh, um, my favourite place in all the world is Huahini. Huahini is a little island close to Raiatea, which is uh, out near Bora Bora. All those islands in the, in the French Polynesia, there, there truly isn't anywhere like it on the planet. And of course, a lot of people are never fortunate enough to make make the journey get to that part of the world i think i've been there 10 15 times now i used to do a lot of work for the td tourism board, working with sport and and tourism together and uh, they used to look after me very well but i've recently been back a few times and uh, plan to be going back there soon but that's a place of incredible ocean energy uh it's uh environmentally just from an environmental standpoint it's just absolutely epic um the people the culture you just immerse yourself in a whole another way. It's literally an out-of-body experience. You know, it's probably the only place in the world I get on an airplane I can feel feel the tears welling up in my eyes. I just can't, just do not want to come leave the place. You know, uh, yeah, it's quite extraordinary. 
Sounds amazing. Steve, thank you so much for your time. It's been a, a brilliant chat. I've really enjoyed it. I've learned a huge amount. If people wanted to find out more about you and about your book, where, where would they go? Yeah, just if you go to uh, canoeculture.com, so it's spelled K-A-N-U, canoeculture.com, uh, to my website, you'll see a bunch of different books of what we've got available, uh, stout powder board all the way through to different aspects of uh, area of canoeing. So then you can read about my, my bit about my life up there and get an idea who I am, where I'm coming from. Um, yeah, that 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 would be the best best mechanism. So I have books for sale there, and I think some I think most of our books are available digitally as well. So yeah, there's there's an option there as well. Brilliant stuff. So we'll have all of that information on the show notes. Steve, thanks so much, and hopefully I'll see you on the water soon. Superb. Thanks for having me. for listening and i hope you enjoyed that chat with the legend who is steve west please check out the show notes for all of the links and the more people who listen to the podcast the more we're able to share the mission of spreading the aloha supporting more people to keep paddling and to share the benefits of this incredible sport so tell your friends tag us on facebook or instagram and if you're new to the sport then don't miss out on our SUP safety course, which is available in the link in the show notes. Mahalo and see you next week where we've got an interview with a true SUP adventurer. Take care. Thank you for listening to SUP FM, the number one podcast for stand-up paddlers wherever you are. If you like what you've heard, please leave us a review on iTunes. Until then, we'll see you on the water.